0: And as I'm talking to you, it actually reminds me, I have a lot of people coming and saying, Ron, you know, I'm married with kids and I've got this business. You know, I'd love to do something. What can you recommend? And honestly, I think it's for some people, it's jumping on your bike and going for a a three-day weekend. Cycle somewhere you've never cycled. Go and sleep on a hill. Just take a sleeping bag. Go sleep under, you know, a bush and a tree. Uh, Go sleep on the beach.
1: Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Uh, You might hear it raining outside. It is absolutely pouring. So if you can hear that, my apologies. Crazy thunderstorm outside. Um, but today, anyway, to, to get into today's episode, uh, it, you know, if Cycling Africa wasn't already on my list of adventures I want to do, I would have absolutely put it on here. So I'm actually going to double up and put it on again. This is times two, something I absolutely want to do after listening to Ron's story. Um, he, he's from South Africa and decided as a way to stop selling himself, him, himself short and start doing something that he, he's proud of, something that seems out of his realm of possibility, honestly, was to bike to every single country on mainland Africa, which is 48 countries in total. And if you're familiar with how large Africa is, you know, this is no small task. In fact, this was the very first time anyone had ever done this. And it took over two years to hit all 48 countries, cycling a total of 26,000 miles. Uh, he, He didn't finish with all of Africa. He actually cycled to the U.K., to the 2015 Rugby World Cup to watch his team, the South African national rugby team, play Japan. Uh, Unfortunately, they lost. So he bikes all that way and his team lost. But he's made a habit of it. So for every World Cup, he cycles across continents to get there. Most recent one was cycling across Europe and Asia for one of the Rugby World Cups. And now he's doing it backwards. So we're going to have him back on again just to talk about uh, what it was like to cycle across all of Europe and Asia as well. He's such a great storyteller, and it was an absolute pleasure being able to talk to him. So you know, no ads today, so we're just going to jump right into it. So here is the interview with Ron. Ron Rutland, welcome to the show.
0: Oh, Mason, this is a great thrill for me. So thank you so much. And, and thanks for your patience. Yeah, as you say, um, uh, I love my country. I, I live here in South Africa. Uh, we, we do have our challenges So and, and consistent power is one of them. So thank you for your patience.
1: Oh, no problem at all. So, you know, you, we want to talk about uh, one of your uh, adventures. You've done other adventures, but I'd love to talk to you about one of your adventures is when you left on what, the 30th of June 2013. So you're coming up on an Correct. anniversary of that. Um, a good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Coming up, I mean, what is that? Seven, eight years. Eight years. Not quite a decade, but still, it's it's a, it's getting it's getting there. You left Cape Town, South Africa, and is that where? By the way, is that where you live right now?
0: Um, no, I actually live in KwaZulu Natal, which is another province. So I live about two thousand kilometers from Cape Town, but I was living there for a few years.
1: At okay. The time. Wow. Well, well, I tell you what. Before we get into going into that story. Tell us about where you grew up. I usually always ask that first, and I actually forgot. But where where did you grow up? Where were you born, and and what kind of things did you do growing up?
0: Yeah, so Mason, I'm, I'm a born and bred South African. Um, I was born just outside the, the city of Durban, which is the third biggest city on the east coast of the country, a beautiful tropical part of the part of the or part of the world. Um, and my parents are actually both born in the UK, so I'm, I'm a first generation South African. But I, I do feel 100 percent South African. It really is in my blood, and uh, spent all my formative years in the country um, and growing up you know I was a very keen sports person I was very keen I played a lot of sports um, and my my main uh, sort of you know the sport that I excelled at the most I guess was rugby um, you know I was always a bit of a bigger bloke and uh, it's sort of a, it's a it's a it's a sport that uh, lends itself to uh, there's a place for everybody from the small skinny fast people to the short fat people to the tall fat people um, it really is a sport for all so uh, and, and as a South African it's sort of if you're yeah, a young South African male, you, it's kind of inevitable that you are going to play rugby. So I really enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, I went to a government school, a state school just outside Durban, a school called Westville. I went to the same school my whole life. Um, and my parents never really had the desire or frankly the means to see the world. So despite them coming from the UK, uh, I'd never been overseas growing up. Uh, we didn't do much travel. Uh, we didn't, we didn't live a very adventurous life growing up. Um, and I guess, you know, not, I didn't know much different though, you know, so it wasn't that I was unhappy or anything. It's just that, uh, you know, where my, my inner desires to see the world came from. I don't know. I just think it's, you know, a lot of people are born with it. And I think if you ask a lot of kids, they sort of, you know, love the idea of travel and adventure and things like that. So I was just lucky enough to, to have it somewhere deep in my DNA.
1: Well, when did you start getting into these, uh, these massive adventures that you, that you're, that you're doing now? Oh Mason, for me it was
0: a bit of a, a midlife crisis, I guess. Um, I was 38 years of old when I when I went embarked on my trip from Cape Town. So um, once I finished university, I went overseas for the first time to go play a little bit of rugby in Australia and I ended up working in Hong Kong and Thailand and the UK for many years. But I sort of I ended up working in, in finance and, and banking for my sins um so really something that i wasn't suited to and it's kind of just you know i found myself falling into this career and it, was, it seemed like a comfortable path uh, a lot of my, my friends were into it so it sort of seemed like the the well with a well-trodden path but deep inside me of me i always had this desire to go and do a big adventure or big travels um and it was actually moving back to cape town moving back to south africa in my early 30s that uh that's when things started to slowly change um i'd never lived in cape town before but it is a it's a fantastically beautiful city. It's got Table Mountain, which is fantastically well-known. Um, and the friends and the group of the circle of people that I, I came in, in sort of contact with and hung out with, were, a lot of them were into their trail running and mountain biking. Um, so I guess for me, it was inevitable that I got sucked into that, that world of endurance sport. Um, and I say sport, you know, for me, I love just taking part. I was never going to compete, but for me, it was. I, I always think of myself as a tractor versus a Ferrari. So, you know, I'm a big guy, and I, I found that I had, I could tick over for a long time. So I'd go on these long slow rides or these long slow hikes. Um, it was a wonderful way to explore my new part of the world. And and as the more I hung out in these kind of circles, I started meeting some people that had done some pretty big adventures in their own rights. I started meeting some adventure races. I started meeting some people that had done some pretty big cycle trips around the country and, and uh, up the East Coast of Africa. And I started looking at these people and I started realizing, you know what? The only difference between that person and that person and that person that's done all these great adventures and me is that those people have made the decision to do it. And for 38 mm-hmm. years of my bloody life, I've looked at these people, I've, I like these people, I've gone, you know, they must be stronger, they must be, must be richer, they must be braver than me. Um, and yet it was so simple. The answer was sitting right in front of me. The only difference, was well, these people had their dreams and really decided to do them and I'd always find excuses. So once I sort of started getting into the mountain biking and I started meeting these people, it sort of st- I had this sort of slow realization that if I put my mind to it, I could actually do something myself. Um, yeah, so that was it. So I t- took out the map of Africa um, and uh, I looked at it and I thought, I'm going to cycle from Cape Town to Cairo, the east coast of Africa. Um, it's a relatively well-documented route. Um, people do it, you know, I'd say relatively frequently and, you know, in four, four by fours, Land Rovers, motorbikes, bicycles, even. Um, but for me, I never done anything like that in my life. I probably spent two nights of my life in a tent. Um, so for me, this was a big, bold, brave step, I guess. And, um, yeah, and I sort of became obsessed with this idea and, uh, I, my initial plans would sort of take a six month sabbatical from my job. I thought I could negotiate that. But as I looked at this map of Africa and as I looked at all these countries, in Africa that I wasn't going to, (laughs) um, my route became more and more zigzagged and eventually I plotted a route from Cape Town to Cairo that was the least direct route possible and in fact a route that went through every single country on mainland Africa, so all 48 countries. Um, So all of a sudden my sort of six-month sabbatical plan I realized was getting thrown out the window and replaced with this dream of of cycling through every country in Africa.
1: I mean that's already that's already a huge adventure to go from Cape yeah. Town to uh, to Cairo. That that is a that is a major major adventure and and something that yeah. takes a lot of audacity and a lot of a lot of ambition. But you you turn yeah. the dial up to eleven, Ron. Like I mean that's unbelievable. Yeah. So so let me ask you this: you know, growing up in South Africa, um, playing rugby, what was you know being in the same continent? What was the rest of Africa? viewed as where you're from and, and, and how did you view it? Was it this scary place uh, with, with lots of, you know, civil unrest and things going on or what was it a place that, that was encouraged to explore?
0: Oh, Mason, absolutely. Yeah. I I think, I think it's, the answer is somewhere in between. I mean, I think we are lucky in South Africa that we, you know, um, and at university, I had some friends who came from Zimbabwe and Malawi, some of our neighboring countries. So I did one or two shorter trips, you know, um, you know, I would, we would sort of hitchhike up into Zimbabwe and go and visit their families. And, and, you know, so I got a little taste of, of some of our, some of our surrounding countries. Um, and I guess I'd met, you know, in South Africa, it's quite common for people to sort of get in sort of overland vehicles and four by fours and, and go up, you know, up to Tanzania, go up to Kenya, um, you know, go up to Namibia. So certainly, you know, the sort of the relatively sort of sub-Saharan African countries. Um, but, there is this perception, for sure, even in South Africa, that a lot of the rest of Africa, in inverted commas, uh, is this big, scary place. And I think, you know, so often these countries are only ever in the news when there's bad news. Uh, you know, you'll only ever hear of Ethiopia when there's a famine outbreak. or You'll only ever hear about Algeria, you know, when there's a bomb in, in Paris and and somebody and, and the person, the terrorist, in inverted commas, is from Algeria or has Algerian roots. And that's the only time people ever hear about these countries. Um, but you know but I've also heard people talk about South Africa like that you know and people go oh my god goodness isn't this such a violent country um, yet you know I choose to live here and you know thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands and of, of people choose to live in, in South Africa and we have the most you know we have our frustrations but it is it's a relatively safe place and you know people go trekking and hiking and adventuring all the time and have you know nothing ever goes wrong you know other than the normal stuff that goes wrong in the wilderness um, so yeah there was a sort of I guess I was Relatively um, pragmatic about it, um, and I travelled enough, I guess, in, even in other parts of the world, to realise that often the pre- your your preconceived idea of a country is so different to the reality on the ground. Um, yes, but yeah. So I guess for me, it, it, it was I had a lot of people asking me, Ron, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you're going to be safe? Um, and of course, the, you know, there were concerns, um, for, uh, you know, but not you can't sort of paint the whole continent, you know, with one you know one brushstroke
1: you shouldn't, but plenty of people do
0: <laughs> oh no, of course yeah hundred yeah you know they do they do and um but i you know i sort of looked I sort of drilled down and I looked at different each individual country and I sort of you know did as much research on the particular countries and what was going on and you know I, there were certain parts of part, there were certain parts of some countries that I specifically avoided um in my planning, and obviously you know you keep your ear close to the ground as you go um but sure, yeah yeah, I think once once I got going and once I was on the road for a couple of months and Everywhere I went over and over again, I was just, you know, welcomed like the strange white guy on a bicycle in the middle of rural Mozambique or the strange white guy on the bicycle in the middle of rural Angola. Um, and yet the people, it, there was no like, look at him, he's a walking, you know, money machine, let's hit him over the head and take him for everything he's got. It was more like, wow, well, here's this, you know, obviously the language barrier was a big thing, but people would see me and they would, the first thing that they would do is offer me food and water. Wow. Um, and yet, that's their most valuable resource, you know. And you haven't seen a river or a pump or well for days, and yet the first thing you get into a village is people offer you water, and are not looking for anything in return, um, you know. And so once you've been, you know, once you've experienced that for the first few weeks and months, you kind of it, it, it does it does change your perspective, and you start like assuming the best in people. And honestly, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, that's that's exactly right. You and and you're rewarded for that um, that assumption.
1: This is such an enormous adventure. I honestly don't even know where to start. It's, it, it's, it's a little mind blowing, but take yeah. us through, I, I tell you what, let's, let, let's start here. Take us through, what did it feel like to, cause I'm looking at your map and the way you went and, and you're going through South Africa. And once you start to get towards the border, wh- what was going through your mind? What were you feeling? Did you feel comfortable in what you had set out to do or was it? still this thing that said I, yeah. you know i don't know what the road ahead is going to hold and that and that terrifies me
0: uh, mason i think one of the the key things for me is that when i left on this trip um i went through a very deliberate process of you know people talk about burning the bridges or burning the boats and i literally sold everything in the world that i owned to make this trip happen you know and when i say everything i wasn't you know i didn't own a, an apartment or anything i was renting an apartment but i sold my car i sold every belonging i went on to you know our equivalents of craigslist and just sold everything um, and that was partly to help finance the trip. But also for me, it was like, if I, I think in the back of my mind, if I'd left a whole lot of stuff at a mate's apartment in Cape Town or in his garage, it would have almost, for me, been like, I'm hedging my bets. You know, let me go and try this yeah. trip. Let me go and see how far I get. But you know what? If something goes wrong, or if I, if I don't like it, I can always go back to Cape Town and pick up where I left off. But in my mind, this trip was going to take me well over two and a half years, or well over two years. And I said, if I'm going to be serious about finishing this trip, and, and getting to Cairo and ultimately getting to the UK afterwards. Um, what is the point of leaving a whole lot of stuff in my mate's garage? So it's weird. Like having never done anything like this in my life before, I mean the bicycle that I bought, I'd never ridden that bike until the day that I started this trip um, and was fully loaded with all the panniers, you know, 35 kilograms of all my gear. And, um, and I actually broke my wrist a few months before I left. So I had done no exercise. Um, and I'm that sort of person that once, as soon as I stop exercising, I start getting fat. Um, and also, like, I was living on a mate's couch for the last, you know, in his, on his couch for the last few months before I left. So I was eating r- badly. So I really was like the fattest and unfittest of my life when I started the trip. But deep inside of me, I just, I, I, I was just, I was all in. Like, I, I, I quit my job. I'd sold everything. And in my heart, like, I'd committed everything to this journey. Like, I said, you know, I've dreamt of doing something like this my whole life. And for the first 38 years of my life, I doubted myself for the first 38 years of my life. I I actually, you know, I realized like how I'd sold myself short in different areas of my life before. And I just said, Ron, this is the first time in your life you're doing something truly out of your comfort zone. It's the first time in your life you sort of, you, you know, you're really just living. I don't know, living true to yourself, like deep inside of my heart. Like, I this is what I wanted to be doing. Um, and I and I said to my, like, I said to myself, unless I literally get squashed by a truck in some you know, some corner of Africa. I am going to find a way to finish this journey. So it's weird. Like, it, it's, 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 I just had this quiet confidence that, you know, I, things would work out. Um, and that just because I had this sort of single focus and single purpose, I would get there. Um, but it does come with a big but, you know. But day one, I was, as I say, I was in terrible shape. And was the only day of the trip that I actually planned in terms of a start point and end point. Because like, I had some friends came to see me off. Um, and this is, you know, after six or seven months of planning, a lot of people telling me, you know, almost joking, some some joking, not some not joking, going, Ron, let's see how quickly it is before you you know you're back here. Let's see how quickly it is before your bike's stolen. You know, let's see. A, hopefully you survive malaria. So people sort of like saying, good luck, Ron. Well done. Uh, you know, good luck, well done for taking the plunge. But almost like almost like betting how long it would you know you would actually last. You know. But, yeah, but at the same time, they all came out to support me to see me off. So I think they wanted me to succeed. But there was this sort of undercurrent of like, God, you know, I hope he's going to be all right kind of thing. But and, you know, and as you say, like a little bit of like, oof, he doesn't look so prepared. You know, maybe this is not such a good idea. But, you know, anyway, I, I got through that day one and it was a long it was 80 kilometers, which, you know, now that I look at it, you know, should have been so easy. But fully loaded touring bike totally unfit i'd never ridden that bike and it was a long long day out and i was even cramping towards the end and you know a lot of the wives and girlfriends and boyfriends of people that were riding but you know that went to you know they they went to the town that we were cycling to and you know we had arranged this big barbecue at lunchtime and we arrived like three hours late because of me Um, and uh but you know what it was was amazing i I, I finished day one and then the next morning i woke up everybody had left and i stayed at my friend's house and i got on my bike And and I rode like 30 or 40 kilometers that second day. My legs were sore. My rear end was sore. Um, But the adventure had started. And then day three I rode. And, you know, I did a bit further. And day four I went a bit further. And somebody would put me up. But, you know, I went a farmer would put me up, you know, at his house. And then he would tell his friends 100 kilometers down the road. And they would put me up at their house the next night and give me a good meal. So, you know, that first few weeks cycling in South Africa on my way to Lesotho, which was the first country outside of South Africa, you know, I think it was a little bit of a honeymoon period, you know, your telephone still works, you still understand the money, you know, you can always, you know, with your Google maps, you can tell where the next town is. So there's a sort of comfort of, of still being in your home, gra- home ground advantage, I guess. Um, and that sort of, you know, over those first few weeks, you know, my legs started getting used to life, you know, you're getting used to riding five or six hours a day. So by the time I got to Lesotho, um, you know, it was three or four weeks into the trip, and it was exciting. The first time I ever crossed a border on a bicycle, you know, and I stamp and I remember the thrill of, you know, getting my stamp, you know, leaving South Africa, getting into Lesotho. Um, and I was only in Lesotho for a few days before I popped out the other end. It's landlocked by South Africa. So back into South Africa, then into Swaziland, then back into South Africa and then going into Mozambique. I, I must admit that's when, you know, I was probably six weeks into the journey. Uh, I'd crossed South Africa. I'd crossed these other two small countries. Now I was leaving South Africa for the third and final time. And it was a sense of like, wow, I'm now going into the rest of Africa um, and I wonder what lies ahead. Um, So there was a little bit of like, you know, butterflies, but also to be honest, a bit of excitement at the same time.
1: I just can't even imagine if if you want me to be honest, just how, how much it, it, it how, how big this felt it's amazing to me an entire people don't realize just how large africa is and i know i don't understand just how big it is and how diverse it is and varied it is what what was the biggest transition for you in the sense of maybe maybe the land or the terrain or the climate or or the culture what was the biggest i am not in at home anymore situation wow.
0: So I think for me, um, there's, there's 2 I'm going to give you two examples. The first was relatively closer to home. So uh, the fifth or sixth country I went into was Angola. Um, so Angola is the first country on this journey that I hadn't been to before. Uh, it's also the first country as a South African that we actually need a visa for. So we have a visa-free arrangement for our neighboring countries. Um, and, and it's also the first country on the trip where people that had been there had told me how rubbish it was. You know, um, I know your previous president had, a, had a quite a, a description of the countries in Africa. <laughs> like, you know, but one of my, you know, mates of mine would say the same thing. They'd go, Ron, Angola is a s-hole country, uh, you know, and they've done business there and they've traveled there. Or, and I think there's something about a bicycle, and this is what I did learn. There's something about a bicycle that makes you relatable. There's something about a bicycle that makes you, you making yourself completely vulnerable, and it, it, it just creates this connection with people. So, you know, I was on the border with Angola. I've been on the road now probably three months, four months, and I'd you know I had some crazy, wild experiences in this, you know, in Zimbabwe in and Ango- oh, Sorry, in Mozambique, in Zambia, in Namibia. I had some wild, crazy experiences. But as I said to you before, like the same, I had this. But everywhere I'd gone, people had been, you know, been wonderful to me and, and welcoming. But there was still the sense of trepidation when I crossed into Angola. Um, and, you know, I, I managed to get the visa. People told me it would be very difficult. And it, it wasn't easy, but I, I got it, you know, in the end relatively easily. Um, people told me it was corrupt. Um, the, I crossed the border, not in any issue at all. But it was a very remote and wild part of Angola. There is absolutely no English whatsoever. Um, and it was the first time on the trip where I realized that, you know, to, to some people, on this, you know, I was going to explore Africa. I was going to go and look at the different cultures. I was going to go and, you know, experiences, as you, as you said, the diversity of the continent. But it was the first time that I, I actually felt like I was giving people the, an, an experience of that as well. Like, it is such a remote part of Angola that I can imagine they've seen very few white people, and they've definitely very, seen very few white people on a bicycle. And it was, you know, it was the first time that I saw kids who were almost too scared to come and, come and speak to me. Like, they'd almost hide behind their parents' legs and almost, like, dare each other to come and touch me or to come and, you know, to come and speak to me. So it was like, I felt like a little bit of a freak in a circus show, you know, like, but it, it, it yeah, so for, for me, that was maybe, it, I wouldn't say uncomfortable, but it was just like, wow, like, I really am in a part of the continent where, you know, that, you know, I stand out. And yeah, so I said, it was, I was never made to feel unwelcome. I was never made to feel uncomfortable, but it was quite a bizarre situation when you realize that I'm in my own continent, I'm actually not that far from South Africa but here they are there people that are looking at me and, you know, with utter bewilderment. Um, so that really, that really, you know, sticks with me, that experience in Angola. And I'm actually going to come back to Angola now. I'm going to talk about one of my favorite stories of the trip, if you don't mind.
1: Please, please do.
0: Yeah, but I'm going to jump ahead to Ethiopia. So Ethiopia was, you know, up northeast of Africa. And that was, for me, was such a dramatic change. So I was in northern Kenya, which is in itself wild and remote. Um, but I crossed into, into Ethiopia on, on what happened to be the 31st of December, 2013. And obviously, you know, coming from where most of the world, that's a significant date. Um, and I crossed the border and I got to this border town, which was about 16 kilometers inside of Ethiopia. And I thought, you know, what it's, What an amazing, uh, you know, I've, I'm, I'm here in the middle of Africa, the southern tip of Ethiopia on New Year's Eve. Let me go and try and find a restaurant or a bar and enjoy a couple of beers. Um, you know, it wasn't exactly a heaving town, but, you know, I found this restaurant, uh, you know, straw on the floor, you know, no walls, you know, very, very basic. And I thought there would be some people out and about. And, I, you know, I had one or two beers, but no one was like out celebrating. There's nothing really going on. And I thought, you know, I was, thought this was a little bit strange. And the, and the restaurant owner let me sleep on the floor of his of his restaurant. And um, I woke up the next morning and I carried on. Um, and it was only when I got to the first major city in well uh, you know, Relative term city in, in Ethiopia that someone actually explained to me that Ethiopia has a use We use the Gregorian calendar You know most most of the world, but they actually use a different calendar and I can't remember the name of it But so for us it was the 31st of December But in Ethiopia it was like the 14th of, of February or something So their calendar is like six weeks off to off ours. They tell time differently like we use midnight as the basis of our time so if I say I'll see you eight o'clock tomorrow morning you know i'll see you eight tomorrow morning it's eight hours after midnight there if they say i'll see you at eight tomorrow it's actually two in the afternoon because they they for them six a.m their equivalent of six a.m or our equivalent of six a.m is effectively their hour naught and the people look different the food is fantastic so it really was a very very distinct difference between the sub-saharan africa that i was brought and brought up in and you know our neighboring countries um, and, and Ethiopia, which was and it's and it's the only country in Africa never to be colonized, so it's a very unique part of the world.
1: Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Wow, yeah, I can't imagine yeah. the differences and just how, the, the 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 level of stories that you have. Is there something on the trip that sticks out to you? It, it is very something unexpected that happened, whether that be with the weather, or with the terrain, like I said, or uh, culture or people? Like, was was anything that just just caught you off guard?
0: Yeah. So I think I'm going to refer to Ethiopia again, um, and and specifically, as I say, that initial culture shock, which really was. You know, other countries there were there were nuances and slightly different food and different languages, but you know this really, you know, Ethiopia really was this distinctive different difference. Um, but what really blew me away was the Mount, the Simian Mountains in northern Ethiopia. You know, I'd read a lot about as much as I could about the different countries I was cycling through, but you know, to research forty-eight countries in 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 deep detail is difficult. You know, there's only so much you can do. But um, I, you know, I was cycling in northern Ethiopia, and the Simeon Mountains have got to be some of the most dramatic, dramatically beautiful and remote and wild mountains i've ever seen in my life um and you know i was i grew up in south africa always thinking of ethiopia as, as a country just a, a desert basically and you know i don't know how old you are mason but uh, you know you know in the early 80s you know in the mid 80s there was live aid and there was all these you know, there was this big famine in east africa and you know the only time that part of the world was ever in the news was you know these kids with big tummies and flies around and yeah. so that's just sort of i guess in the back of my mind some of the what i kind of Not really expected, but sort of what was burnt in my memory. And yet here I was in these these mountains in northern Ethiopia that wouldn't have looked out of place, you know, and maybe not the Himalayas, but certainly in the Alps or maybe in the Rocky Mountains or something. But it was just dramatically, dramatically beautiful. Yeah, wild, wild, wild.
1: I'm looking Um, at pictures right now, and that is – I've never, never seen those before. Wow.
0: Yeah, it's so crazy. And then I think more from a people and culture point of view, if, you look, if you've look, if you got a map in front of you, so the Republic of Congo, which is the, the smaller of the two Congos, um, I actually came in from the north, from Cameroon, Central African Republic into the Northern Congo. Um, and that has got to be some of the most remote, wildest you know, rainforests of, in Africa. Um, and there it was just, it was mind-blowing. You know, you, it's, it's some of the hardest riding I've done in my life. It's, you know, being on the tropics, it's, it's around the equator, it's always wet and muddy. Um the infrastructure really isn't very good at all. But you come across these villages and there's pig you know, obviously that's where the the pygmies of Africa, that's where they're from. Um and you end up camping with these pygmies. And it's just like, I cannot believe this is happening to me. These are like <laughs> these are like people and 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 cultures that I've only ever read about in National Geographic magazines or seen on the Discovery Channel. And here I am, like this complete novice adventurer. Um, you know, cycle, I'm cycling in the northern Congo jungles, and I'm stumbling apos, across like the Pygmies, and I just went, like, this is just like that was a that was a pinch me, you know, one of those pinch yourself moments, um, yeah. And it just, I mean, Africa has, and I stand to be corrected, but something like two and a half thousand languages, you know, and some of them are only spoken by, you know, unfortunately a lot of them are dying very quickly, and you know, there's only a few. You know, tribes, and maybe some in some cases. You know, one tribe speaks one language. You know, one you know they're the only people that speak these languages. So, I mean, the diversity of Africa is just enormous, and it's just um, yeah, it's quite sad. I think that often people just think, ah, you know, you're from Africa, and they sort of ha- have in mind what you look like or what you're going to be like. But my goodness, it's it's a diverse continent.
1: What what would you say one of the biggest lessons you've learned from that experience, and maybe a story that goes along with Teaching you that lesson.
0: Um, so I think uh, for me, it's one of the, the key lessons is, and I, and I alluded to it earlier, is, is is to assume the best in people. And um, I'm going to give you an example, and that's this is what I actually want to talk about with Angola. So going back to Angola, being the first time, you know, the first country on the trip I hadn't been to, the first country we, that people had really warned me about, and it was. I got into the, I got into Angola. And it was remote and it was wild, but it was exciting, and I was like. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, cycling along the, the Zambezi River, uh, and it's beautiful. It's exactly what you dream about when you cycle through. You know, you think of cycling through Africa, um, but you know, there's no villages, no, you know, no, no villages of significance. Nowhere, you know, getting supplies is very difficult. And after about a week on the road in Angola, I got to this small town, which, which as it turns out, was the only town that I got to at all in, in Angola, and it's and it's right there in the eastern bit that sort of sticks into Zambia. Um, and I got to this town and I was pushing my bike down this, I guess, the high street, you know, it's just a dirt road. And I was looking for a, you know, a store to get some supplies. And then all of a sudden, this policeman comes out from a guard hut on the side of the road. Um, and he's a bit scruffily dressed. And he comes over to me and he starts talking to me in Portuguese and sort of, you know, and he, and he starts, you know, gesticulating and sort of get quite excited. And then I'm looking at him like quizzically. I have no idea what he's saying, you know. And then he, then he sort of rubs his thumb and forefinger together. And I thought, ah. I know what that means. That's the international sign language that he's looking for a little bit of a toll fee to let me pass. You know, and people have warned me about, you know, sort of this kind of low-level corruption, if you want, in Africa. And i would made up my mind that if I ever encountered anything like this, I was not going to even enter negotiations. You know, I think often they, people will prey on your impatience. So I went through my routine of like patting my pockets and going, oh, no money, sorry, no money. You know, and he looks at me again and, he, and he's like, and you can see he's not quite, compu- you know, computing. So we go, he goes through the process again and he rubs his thumb and forefinger together. And I go, to this cheeky guy. So I, I went, no, no money. And then he, we go through the third time. But the third time he does it, he actually puts his hand into his pocket and he pulls out a few crumpled notes and he actually pushes them towards me. And I thought, cheeky bugger. He's now like, you know, showing me exactly what he wants. So I actually <laughs> like, yeah. So I actually like, I, I mean, I wasn't aggressive, but I like, I sort of, you know, pushed his hand gently. and I said, no, no money. And then he he looks, and again he like looks at me, and he he sort of shakes his head, and he and he he then sort of um, simulates the you know drinking, like drinking out of a bottle, and he goes, no, no, coca, coca, and I suddenly realized that this policeman who probably earns thirty dollars a month, forty dollars a month, I have no idea, but it won't be much more than that, but he was actually offering me money to buy a coke, so he was going, coca, coca, you want you want money, you want coca. And I promise you, Mason, I have never been more mortified in my life. You know, that I'd allowed my preconceived ideas of what a policeman in Angola would be wanting from me. And all he was doing was actually saying, oh, you want money? You need money. So I could go and buy a Coke. Um, And I honestly, like, and all of a sudden, you know, I said, oh, no, don't worry. You know, after pleading poverty, all of a sudden, "No, no worries. I've got money. I've got money. And he wouldn't accept. He would not. He insisted on buying me a Coke. And I've never in my life been more, I was uh, like embarrassed doesn't even begin to sum it up. Like I had been on the road for three months. I'd experienced so much of the goodness of people over and over and over again. I mean, sub-Saharan Africa is the poorest, depending how you, you judge wealth Wealth, anyway. But if you look at the IMF or these, these fancy economic economists, you know, sub-Saharan Africa is technically the poorest place in the world. And over and over again, I'd come to villages in the middle of nowhere people that don't have running water, there's no stores to buy food, yet the first thing people would do would be offer you food and water, their most valuable resource. You know. And I'd, I'd been on the receiving end of all this goodness and all this positivity for three months, and yet deep in my mind, like I allowed the, sort of, the, the warnings that I had before this trip, like people are corrupt, people are going to want money from you in Angola, and, and it was directly the opposite. And I actually made a point. I said to myself, Ron, from the, this moment on, you are going to assume the best in people for the rest of this trip and honestly Mason I, I can count on one hand you know in 800 and something days in the road you know the number of times that I had issues with people and I, I was never robbed nobody ever hit me over the head so it was nothing major but you know from that that for me is a, is a, is a moment and wasn't didn't just change my attitude for the rest of that trip but I do try and remind myself now you know these I've done obviously done other trips subsequently and back in my normal life here in South Africa um, I do try to remind myself when I find myself slipping into, you know, allowing myself to sort of get a bit negative about things. Um, you know, that lesson for me of assuming the best in people is just it pays dividends over and over and over again.
1: Ron, it's a beautiful story. Y- you being on the road in one of the most probably challenging places to do something like this, all of Africa, uh, in the world that is like one of one of the most probably apprehensive places people would adventure on on ground level like this yeah and to hear that the biggest lesson you learned or one of the biggest lessons you've learned is to assume the good in people is just i mean it just blows my mind that if if you can do it there and you can assume it there in your situation we can at any time of our lives anywhere we are and,
0: and any any interaction exactly you know and if and it's the same like You know, the complete opposite, you know, if when you're in London or Hong Kong or New York or Chicago or, you know, big cities and busy places, like all the most remote corners of the world, I really do, honestly, without trying to sound like kumbaya, like honestly, honestly, honestly. It's, you know, I've subsequently, you know, I've checked across Mongolia. I've cycled across Europe and Asia. You know, I've done adventures in in over 100 countries in the world, you know, from the most poorest countries in sub-Saharan Africa, Central Asia, to Western Europe, you know, um, and honestly that it's, it's a truism that, that I absolutely stand by.
1: That is, that is so fantastic. Uh, you know, this, this has kind of taken us out of the experience itself and out of some of the other trips you've done, which are 100% qualified to be their own podcast episodes. We'll have to have you back on <laughs> and talk about them and I'll have to plan some more time cause I want to hear some of this more in depth. Um, yeah. f- for you, you you said the first thirty eight years of your life, you you felt like you were making decisions on fear and weren't really you know doing things like this. Of course, um, or how would you have done this if you had not had the ability to do this experience? How would you have taken your life into your own hands and into your control? Um, maybe if you didn't have the ability to take two years off, what, what what could you foresee now to learn those same lessons? What could you do?
0: Well, listen, that's a it's a it's a. Yeah, I've never been asked it like that. It's, a, it's, it's quite a hypothetical because, um, you know, I think for me, and, and I, I'm, I'm sort of thinking on the fly here, but I look back at the first 30 years of my life and I realize how much I sold myself short, like in everything I did, you know, whether it was my rugby career, like, you know, I was never going to play for South Africa. I was never going to be a full-time professional rugby player. But I, I think that I always, you know, as much as I think that I tried as hard as I could, um, as much as I, I enjoyed the sport as much as I could, I do think that deep inside of me, I never truly had the belief that I was, you know, as good as the people around me, you know, and I just sort of, for some reason, had this sort of, this, this self, yeah, you know, just the self doubt about how good I could be. And then when I think of myself in my working life, in my careers, various d- different sort of jobs and careers I've had, I also look back now and I go, like, you know, I, I would look at people around me and I'd go, oh, they're so much better than me, or, you know, they just, they're so much smoother than me. They're much better salespeople than me. I, I can never be like that. And and it's such a it's such a self-defeating attitude. Um, and you know, and I think for me it was like a it was a it was a combination of like frustration at not at feeling that yeah, you know, that I that I'd sort of wasn't living the life true to myself. It was this frustration that, you know, I saw people around me succeeding in in, in what they did more than me i looked at people that had, and then it was when it came to adventure started looking at some of these people that had done these big adventures and i think for me it was i dreamed I, I dreamt of the hardest thing i could possibly do on a bicycle um and i think although i wasn't consciously thinking it i think deep down inside of me i said if i can make this happen then truly anything is possible like you know nobody nobody's ever attempted a single journey through every country in africa in anything nobody tried it on a motorbike nobody done it in a four by four and here i was planning it. Uh, on a bicycle. Um, and it is this, you know, again, it is, it is, despite everything I was telling you earlier, there's a lot of, you know, there are a lot of people, you know, plant seeds of doubt in your mind. And, you know, next thing you, you're planning a trip and you'll catch a a news bulletin about something going on. And, um, but yeah, so I, I think it was like, for me, it was like, it was a subconscious decision to do the hardest thing I could possibly could knowing that if I did it, it would almost like just kickstart my life. And that's exactly what happened. Like, when I finished this journey, like I had no money. I'd borrowed, I'd maxed out every credit card. I'd borrowed money from friends and people um, to get to the end of the journey. But I'd done it. I dreamt of the hardest thing and I'd pulled it off. And it just, it the, the confidence boost that it's given me in every, every area of my life since it's just been transformational. So, you know, it, it's hard to say what what could I've done um, differently or what could I've not done in two years. But, you know, I have a lot of people, and as I'm talking to you, it, it actually reminds me, I have a lot of people coming and saying, Ron, you know, I'm married with kids and I've got this business uh, and I'd love to do something like this. You know, I'd love to do something. What can you recommend? You know, and honestly, I think it's for some people, it's jumping on your bike and going for a, a three-day weekend, you know. Cycle somewhere you've never cycled. Go and sleep on a hill. You know, just take a sleeping bag. Go sleep under, you know, a bush and a tree. Uh, go sleep on the beach. You know, you live in your comfortable house with your air conditioning and, you know, you've got your nice fancy car and you, you drive to a holiday cottage. You spend two days on the beach surfing and you know drinking you pack up you get back in your car and you go home and well, that's a fun weekend But do something that but, the, but for a lot of people like that the thought of sleeping on the beach or The thought of sleeping on a hill is like oh my goodness aren't you gonna get mugged? What happens if it rains, you know, so there are all these reasons why you can't do those things So I almost suggest just go and do something crazy go and go do something what you know you consider crazy You know if it's a three-day weekend or even a two-day weekend, you know leave work on a Friday put a, you know, put a sleepy bay, you know, in a, in a, in a backpack, you know, a couple of sandwiches and a bottle of water and see, go cycle and find somewhere to sleep for the night and then cycle back the next day. Um, so I, I don't know, probably not answering your question, but <laughs> yeah, that's just, uh, yeah, some of the sort of recollections and, and just what I did, I guess, to come over, overcome my own fears and self doubts.
1: What, what do you do now? To, to continue that that mindset do you, do you take your own advice do you sleep you know in random places or on a hillside um h- how do you keep that adventure movement going in you
0: Yeah, so i mean for sure like i i, I don't you know I, I did that african trip and i was on the road for 27 months and you know and it it, it was now that I, you know it it all it did was it was it put fuel into the fire for me so, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not someone who's going to go and spend 10 years on the road. And, and, you know, I do like coming home. I do like seeing my friends and family. I do like the comforts of, you know, a normal life and inverted commas for a bit. But, you know, I, I, I came back after that trip having, you know, as I said to you, no money, nothing. But it, it, it was all of a sudden like, well, I'll, you know, if I, can, if I can find a way of getting through Africa, if I can find, get over all these challenges that I've, that I've got through on this journey of cycling through Africa, you know to find it you know to find a job or to find you know some way to put food on the table surely i can do that um, and and as it turns out you know um, what every when i got back from my trip everybody wanted to hear about my story so you know i'd, so I'd find myself at friends houses or at barbecues or uh, in a in a in a bar and people would i'd be spending hours and hours telling
1: stories about my trip and I then can't someone even said to imagine, me imagine man i can't even imagine yeah. just trying to you know get home and tell people how you know because they'd probably say hey how was your trip and leave it at that. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. But then, but then some people said, oh, Ron, and actually, I'll tell you, one of my friends, his company were having a golf day for some of their clients. And they, and they had, a, I think they had a comedian booked to come in. So they're playing golf and they were going to you know, have a big fancy dinner. And I think that brought in a, they were going to have a comedian. And the comedian, you know, canceled on like sort of two days before. So this guy phones me in a panic and he says, Ron, <laughs> basically, do you want to replace the comedian and just come and stand on stage and tell some stories about your bicycle trip? So I just did it as a favor, you know. I stood on, you know, I had some of my photographs and a projector, and I and I just told some stories about my trip, and people were fascinated. Um, and then somebody in the audience said, "Everyone, oh we've got a sales conference next month. Don't you want to come into a motivational talk?" And you know, at this stage, I didn't even realize there was an option. Uh, you know, and I guess that that was so that led me, you know. But you know, like for a lot of people, when you go and stand on stage for the first time, um, you know, to do a speech or a talk, some people freeze up, and it's you know, people find it very, very difficult. And that for me was, I was, I still remember like that. This like real sick feeling, you know, I was going to be on the stage, I was going to be the center of attention, despite, you know, you know, and I always felt self-conscious when I was talking about my trip. Yeah, but now, you know, now, so that was sort of, you know, a bit of, you know, that sort of overcoming the sort of public speaking thing, but then you do it a couple of times, you become comfortable and you realize people enjoy it. Um, so I really enjoy it. I've, I've told my story to, you know, to probably, you know, I don't exaggerate, but I'd say 100 schools in South Africa and companies and so that kind of sort of helped get me back on my feet. Yeah, I, I reconnected with another friend, you know, and after a year or, or so of doing that, I started thinking about what next. And it was time for another adventure, and, and it's amazing how life works, but I know we're running out of time, but I reconnected with an old friend of mine from Hong Kong, and he was a keen golfer, and he, I, I did a talk to him and his rugby team, and he said, Ron, I, I've got no interest in cycling through Africa, but I'd love to do something with golf. The next thing, you know, over two hours of, of drinking coffee together, we came up with an idea of him and I playing golf across Mongolia. So that confidence that I'd had to look at a map go, well, you know, this is what you need to, you know, if you can plan a trip cycling to Africa, you can plan anything. So you go, okay, well, perfect. We'll, we'll get a set of golf clubs. I'll have a cart. I'll pull our stuff. You can walk and hit this thing. We'll, you know, And you just realize that like, you can just draw a black line on a map and make anything happen. And that's what means being the most liberating thing. So I just basically live from pulling out a map, drawing a line of something that I'd love to do, and then just putting everything in place to make that happen. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a pretty cool way to be living my life.
1: <laughs> I'd say – what an incredible experience. I definitely want to have you back on, but I, but I think we have time for a, a few more questions about this trip oh, specifically. Definitely. Yeah, I hate to jump all the way back, but man, t- tell me about, was there a moment or an experience where you maybe had a, a you know self-reflection and thought, how did I end up in this situation? Like a very random situation or something where you thought, you know, plan this trip, do this thing. I never thought in a million years I would be right here.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you straight away. Lake of Sol. So A-S-S-A-L.
1: S A L. All right, I'm, I'm looking it up right now. A double <S-A-L>.
0: uh, It's in Djibouti, which is a tiny little country on the Horn of Africa. Um, most people have no. Would go Djibouti is that a country? You go, yep. Um, so it's very. Yeah, so it's between um, Somalia, uh, Ethiopia, Eritrea. So it's right on the Horn of Africa, the entrance to the Red Sea. Anyway, Lake of Sol is the third lowest place on the planet and the lowest point in Africa. So it's 150 meters below sea level. Um, so uh, you're cycling in the middle of the desert and they're in the middle of, well, not the middle, the Horn of Africa. And you come across these series of lakes which are below sea level. And they're completely saline. So it's like, I think it's the Red uh, sorry, the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. You know, you see those famous photographs of people lying in the sea reading their newspapers because it's so salty. Um, and that's exactly what this is. And there you are in the middle of the desert, in the middle of Africa. You've got the third lowest point in the world. And it's this ancient, ancient, you know, it's obviously, you know, from when the, the, the continent split up, it's actually a part of what would have been the ocean, the original ocean. And here it is in the middle of the desert. It's this, you have like this white crust, that, you know, of the shore, basically, which runs for like 100 yards from the sand to the actual where the water starts. And you sort of you walk through and it crunches. And it says, "Yeah, you pick it up and you taste it, and it's just, you know, it's obviously salty." And you get to this water, and it's almost, its so salty, it's almost itchy. And there you are—you can lie on this lake uh, in the middle of the African desert. And I just—I just I say, just, I just went like, "This is just ridiculous." Like, I had no idea this place even existed. It was only in my research, like planning this trip, that I really identified Djibouti and where it was, and have any idea. And here I am. So for me, that was one of those moments. It was just like. This is ridiculous. I mean, I've never even seen this on National Geographic, <laughs> and here I am experiencing it um, for myself.
1: I'm sure there were thousands of places like that where where they were off, they weren't on the they weren't on the list of top destinations, but yeah, you discover them by accident maybe, and and it, and it became probably some of your favorite experiences of the whole thing.
0: Yeah. Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. And there's another one that jumps to mind, and you you look at you know I always you know so one of the biggest challenges on a trip like this is your visas you know how do you organize visas while you're on the road um, and, and you know there's, there's very few disadvantages on a bicycle but one of them is that it's very you know if the nearest city um, you know is 400 kilometers off route where you could go to, you know you, go, you want to go and get a visa application for the next country that's an 800k detour, which is like a 10-day detour right, at, right. At, at minimum, you know. Um, so I had this, I was doing this uh, after long, I mean, I, again, I could spend hours just explaining how I organize visas, but I, I got to, and it was all going quite smoothly, actually, until I got to Gabon, which is on the west coast of Africa, um, just near the Congo there, um, pretty much on the equator. And I, I was in Libreville, which is the capital, um, waiting for my visa for Equatorial Guinea, which is one of these very tiny postage stamp countries that is, you know, as a result of you know, history basically. Um, there's a very little bizarre little country, but it's a notoriously difficult and bureaucratic process to get your visa for. So I actually ended up being stuck in Libreville for almost a month. So it was the biggest delay in my trip, or the big yeah, the biggest the, the biggest holdup of the trip of, of the whole thing. Um, but while I was there, you might notice if you look at a map, just off the coast to the west, there's a, there's a little there's two little islands called. It's actually the country of Sao Tome and Principe.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at and,
0: it. Yeah, and, and it's the most, it's, it's I mean, again, I, I'll be completely honest. I had no idea this country existed before I did this trip. And, um, you know, I, in my research, so Africa has 54 countries, 48 on mainland, and there's six island nations. So there's four in the Indian Ocean on the east, and there's two in the west, which is the Cape Verde Islands. And then there's this little country of Sao Tome and Principe. So when I was in Libreville, I was, I was updating my blog um, and I was stuck there. And my one friend replied, he said, Ron, if you're in Libreville, you should go to tome because, and it's a long story, but he had a friend who actually invested in, some, in, a, in, a, in a conservation project there. Um, so they very generously uh, sponsored me a flight from Libreville to Tome. It's only a little you know, hour flight. Um, but it, you have the and, the, and the country is made up of two islands, which straddle the, the equator. And I promise you, when you fly into it, it looks like Jurassic Park. So it's this completely rainforest covered little island um, slash country. All the mist you know kind of in the in the in the valleys um and it's just like jurassic park without the fences that's that's the first impression that i had wow and it's just yeah so i ended up spending like 10 days in Tome and Principe, sort of just kicking back um and obviously left my bicycle in Libreville. Uh, i actually rented a motorbike for a couple of days to go and explore the bigger of the two islands um but it was just the most you know magical place and, and the smaller island of the two i actually hiked the whole island o- over a day with a with a local guide you come across these old plantation homes um, that have been completely overgrown. So it used to be a Portuguese colony um, and then they used to grow, I want to say coffee, coffee. I think it was coffee. The, the, the Portuguese handed the country back, you know, at the end of the colonial in the 1970s, the Portuguese basically fled and left the country to, you know, left the, the new government or, you know, the people to look after themselves. So all these sort of big fancy plantations became overgrown because there was no expertise knew how to run them so the whole island it's amazing when what nature does when it recovers so all, you know so they basically have these big homes and, these, and obviously they've all collapsed and, and ruined but in the middle of the jungle and there's, there's the old railway line which is completely covered in jungle yeah just this bizarre little place but just a fantastic bewildering crazy yeah just magical little spot in the middle of the, the atlantic
1: wow I, I've never even, I mean, I've seen it on a map. I don't know anything about it. Don't hear anything about it. So it's just amazing what's out there that isn't talked about that much that you are able to discover when you get out there and see it that you'll never know otherwise. 100%. W- w- where can people find you? Where can people see what you're doing next? And do you have any plans for something coming up?
0: Well, the answer is yes, yes, and yes. So um, all right. So, uh, so this trip took me from Cape Town and although it was, it was primarily about Africa, I actually pushed on through and I cycled through Europe and got to the UK. Um, I'm a big rugby fan and, and, the, and the Rugby World Cup was taking place in the UK in 2015. So fast forward four years later, I actually cycled with a, a friend of mine with a, a very different type of journey. Uh, we, we actually had a sponsor this time and we were doing some proper fundraising. So in 2019, my mate James and I cycled from London to Tokyo um, because it, in the, the Rugby World Cup in 2019 was taking place in, in Japan. So I kind of had this theme of cycling to World Cups. So I'm now planning the next one uh, which will be cycling from Tokyo to Paris um, starting in January is the, to- is the goal, and it's actually going to be 20 months, and cycling, uh, basically, it's a bit of a convoluted route, but I'm basically going to cycle from Japan back through China, Vietnam, south through Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, across Australia, up New Zealand, Then I'm going to catch a flight to the Ushuaia, in the bottom of Argentina, and cycle up the whole of South America, the whole of Central America, and then I'm going to come and visit you, Mason, because from Mexico, I'm going to enter Texas and then head all the way up, uh, I guess, the south and then the east up to New York, Boston, into southeast Canada, and then fly across to Iceland and then onto the UK and onto Paris. Um, so that's going to be a 40,000-kilometer journey through 41 countries starting in January. Uh, so that's my next big adventure. And if you go to ronrutland.com, I'm actually just in the process of, of redoing the site. So ronrutland.com, my name There'll be links to uh, history, the stories of all my journeys. I've actually done a documentary on our cycle trip from Tokyo to, from London to Tokyo. There's a documentary there on my Mongolian uh, golfing adventure um, and, a, and a gallery with hundreds of photographs from my African trip. So, but it's, anyway, it, it, it's it's work in progress. But the next week or so, it'll be up and running properly. Um, and if you look for just search for Ron Rutland on Twitter and Instagram, and you'll see all the links there.
1: How exciting, Ron! That is that is a heck yeah. of an adventure, uh, yeah. Please, I know it's going to be a while, but please stay in touch. I'd love to host you. I'd love to. I'd love to interview you and in, you in person too. And and before yeah. uh, before you leave, we got to get an interview to hear about that. uh Tokyo to what? Where was it? Tokyo to,
0: oh, London to Tokyo.
1: London to Tokyo. Holy cow! Yeah, yeah. We, we got, I want to hear about that because that seems even you know m- more distinct changes. Uh, culturally and, and environmentally. That that is wild. All right, Ron, I'll talk to you soon, man. All right,
0: man. Thank you so much. Right, Just chatting. Nice yep.
1: First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to the show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes.